on the one hand, you've got this building on the third industrial revolution, the, the tech that you and I both know, our, our laptops, our, our tablets, our ability to do Skype calls like this. But actually, we don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to be able to withstand the misuse of that technology. Welcome to this week's episode of The Commute. I'm Jessica Van Anselen. In June last year, June 2018, I got an SMS from Liberty Life, with whom I hold a policy. The SMS said that they had been the victim of a data theft attack and that the hackers were attempting to extort money out of Liberty. The Liberty incident was a particular scrick for me because it was the first time I'd actually got a direct text message saying your particular and personal data has potentially been stolen, which I presume included my bank details as Liberty was taking a direct debit out of my account every month. Almost every week, somewhere in South African newspapers, you can read about cyber attacks, cyber theft, cyber extortion and cyber manipulation. Sometimes it's government or city power. Sometimes it's in the private sector. Sometimes it's just you and me at home. But if you collect them all and read them back to back, you very quickly start to get a picture of an all-out assault on South Africa via the internet. You might be familiar with the name Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica was the slightly terrifying data company hired in 2016 by both Trump's presidential campaign and the Vote Leave Brexit campaign to assist in efforts to spread misinformation ahead of the US election and the UK referendum using data sets it obtained illegally. Using micro-targeted adverts crafted on data about Facebook users, their misinformation campaigns worked extremely well. For evidence of Cambridge Analytica's triumphs, see Exhibit A, POTUS Donald Trump. And Exhibit B, Boris Johnson's dazzling Brexit utopia, which I think we can all agree looks nothing short of inspiring, inclusive and great value for money. High five, far-right zealots, you're doing great. Recently, it was confirmed that Cambridge Analytica, the commercial equivalent of that creepy guy who sits staring at you and breathing heavily while you're working in a coffee shop, had in fact illegally downloaded the information of 60,000 South Africans as part of its original sweep on Facebook. Yes, that's right. That's probably you. This got me thinking. Shouldn't we be talking a lot more about our defenses against cyber attacks? And I'm not just talking about at the individual level, like getting a password manager, although you should all totally do that. I recommend LastPass or Dashlane. I'm talking about as a country. How do we protect ourselves against people and states using the internet for nefarious or just plain evil ends? Shouldn't we tighten up our laws? get cybersecurity centers going, train specialist police to fight cybercrime. Don't we need to teach our kids about this stuff? Shouldn't we be having public awareness campaigns? To discuss this, I spoke to Karen Allen. Karen is a consultant at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, tracking emerging threats in Africa and their impact on human security. But some of you may in fact recognize her voice from her previous job. She was a foreign correspondent with the BBC based in Kenya, Johannesburg and Kabul, covering Africa and Afghanistan for TV, radio and online. Just run her name through Google and you'll see amazing scenes of Karen reporting from Tripoli at the height of the Libya crisis. Karen is not only a committed Afrophile, but she's also a visiting fellow at King's College London, where she studied her masters in international relations and contemporary war. Karen Allen, welcome to The Commute. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Good to meet you. E meets you. 
Karen, some of our listeners might recognize your voice or recognize the description of your career from your previous incarnation. Um, But today we're going to talk about cyber warfare and cyber attacks as part of foreign policy. Talk to us a little bit how you found yourself working in this new sector. Sort of a bit by accident, actually, because I was I was working as a correspondent for 25 years for the BBC and the latter part, as you say, in, in places like Afghanistan, but actually mainly uh, across across Africa. And we didn't really have much exposure to this kind of thing. Um, I spent some time going and doing a master's degree whilst I was busy being a correspondent. And I got quite interested in international relations. And I got very interested in some of the new challenges that, that were presented by sort of the new world that we live in to the sort of international order, as we always call it grandly, sort of post end of the Cold War. And, you know, we were talking about things like lethal autonomous weapons, laws, as they call them, killer robots, and all these things that once were featured in Terminator. And I don't watch films like that. But I became interested in the kind of implications for human rights and the implications for how the rules of war are governed. And just found that really fascinating. <laughs> um, and I decided to take a little bit of a detour out of journalism. Um, and to look at issues of political risk in this part of the world. Um, And I was approached by the Institute of Security Studies, which is a applied policy think tank um, in based in South Africa, but with offices right across the continent, very plugged into to the UN and to other organizations globally, um, to look at some of the emerging threats. And that is really yeah. through the prism of um, not only cyber, but also the kind of whole four IR, the kind of digital disruption, which has become such a hype term. I have to say there's more of a hype term in South Africa than outside of South Africa. Um, to try and define this really uncertain, highly automated world that we're going into, which in many ways, you know, for most countries in, in, in Africa that still have really grinding poverty and that still are grappling with some of the basics in life, this feels like a million miles away. But given the uptake of, of mobile phone technology, given the uptake of of internet, people having tablets, uh, and access to the internet is increasing dramatically. Um, even though the infrastructure may not be there, the threat is very much present. So it's early days, it's something that we're building on, and I've had to become an expert really quickly, and I am not an expert. I'm just an interested party that's trying to read voraciously on this subject. Everyone is in the situ- that situation. It feels like the technology and the implications of that technology are moving so rapidly, both for individuals and for states, that it is a constant process of self-education to keep up with these developments. Absolutely, yeah. So Cyril Ramaphosa addressed a digital summit at Wits University in, in July, and he spoke about this term that you've just used, the uh, fourth industrial revolution, which I find in South Africa is abbreviated to 4IR, which I have never seen anywhere else. But what do we mean when we refer to the fourth industrial revolution as you understand it? Well, it was actually a term and it is a, a, a correct term that was actually coined by the executive chair of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. And he looked at different phases of industrial development. And, and he described the third industrial revolution was when electricity electronics and information technology began to automate production, whereas the fourth industrial revolution builds on this, but at an exponential rate. 
and it imagines the fusing of technologies that blur the lines between physical, digital, and biological spheres. Now, that all sounds very cerebral, doesn't it? What it means to you and me is what many people talk about digital disruption. The ability mm. to be able to do things in an automated way, and therefore it incorporates things like artificial intelligence, um, robotics. Um, some people might have heard of the Internet of Things, you know, where you're able to connect physical things like light switches and like kettles and like all manner of things. There was a girl in the US who I think texted her friends from her fridge yes, after her mother exactly. took her mobile phone away. It, yes, that's it, the Internet that of is Things. The Internet of Things, exactly. And this is like... To an old woman like me, this is like the stuff of science fiction, but it's becoming <laughs> it's becoming real. Not only South Africa, but the world is trying to grapple with it. But the reason why it's become such a big deal in South Africa is because Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, has seized upon this uh, for its commercial and its developmental potential um, in being able to, in a way, leapfrog and. Uh, you know, in the same way that other technologies have, to be able to leapfrog some of the development stages that the global north went through um, and to be able to address some of South Africa's problems. But you know, there's a whole debate about that. You know, we still have large numbers of children that don't pass their matric. We've got, you know, one in four people that are unemployed. And, you know, there are still some basics that need to be put in place before everyone starts learning how to code or become engaged in the digital world. But nevertheless, you know, he seized upon this as uh, something which gives vast potential and has promised that there will be significant training and money put into trying to train South Africans into learning this technology. So it is an exciting new space. But some of the things that I'm quite interested in is some of the unintended consequences that go with that. Because of course, on the one hand, you've got this building on the the third industrial revolution, the, the tech that you and I both know, our, our laptops, our, um, our tablets, our ability to do Skype calls like this. Mm. But actually, we don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to be able to withstand the misuse of that technology. And we're, all get, we're also getting a, a bit of a flavor it already, not just with sort of hack attacks, but also, you know, the big issue about big data. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, big data would be a, a commodity in the way people talk about it now? I know at the World Economic Forum that's just been um, held in, in Cape Town, you know, there was one presentation that was entitled, you know, is data, you know, Africa's new oil. And I think, you know, we have to get our heads around this, whether we like it or not in this part of the world. You know, Kenya is is forging ahead. Nigeria is forging ahead. South Africa, it feels, is sort of playing catch up, but is in a much better position, I suppose, politically and internationally, given its leverage, to also run with this. Uh, and that's why it's become such a big thing. And it seems to me that South Africa is starting to engage under the Ramaphosa presidency positively with the potential of the internet, the potential of data for development. But of course, as you say, there are a number of actors who are engaging with the same technology and are quite far down the road in using it in quite malicious or dark ways to further their their own interests. Um, we certainly have a couple of states who have already experimented in quite a worrying way with cyber warfare and cyber attacks. On the bad side, let's look at the bad guys. What are some of the main types of intervention that we're seeing in the world of cyber warfare? What can that look like? So what we need to think about 
about is who's acting. So are we talking about states or are we talking about individuals? Are we talking about what we call non-state actors? In South Africa, just to put this to one side just for a moment, most of the attacks that we're seeing in South Africa are by so-called hacktivists, by people wanting to make a point, uh, the, the lone wolf type attacks, if you like, uh, that are happening in someone's bedroom who is able to compromise systems um, but we haven't had the kind of really large-scale attacks that we've seen in other parts of the world. That's not to say that South Africa is beginning to feel spillover from, you know, attacks that are being blamed on on, on places like North Korea. So, you know, it's interesting just to talk you through kind of the, the, the kind of big ones that, you know, we've, we've, we've heard of. Well, I guess one of the first ones we'd heard of was back in, um, I think it was 2007, um, and where Estonia uh, was the subject of an attack which was blamed roundly on, on Russia, uh, allegedly over a, a, a fight over a, a war memorial. Something that was possibly a little bit more high profile was the Ukraine in 2016, when basically large parts of the Ukrainian electricity network sort of went offline. And again, that was blamed on a Russian hack. Now, you know, imagine that happening at ESCOM here. And, and no jokes, please, you know, because one or two people have said, you know, would we notice the difference? Of course, yeah. You know, the implications are absolutely massive. I mean, recently uh, in Britain, there was um, a ransomware attack on um, the service that provides forensic science and and some of the results from forensic laboratories now that's had an implica- that's had an impact on the police service or police investigations it's had an impact on on the courts imagine the same thing happening in this part of the world where we already have a fairly fragile justice system well i'm not sure we do have to imagine it because in august this year so just a month ago the united nations brought out a report on a north korean cryptocurrency attack and they named that south africa was one of the countries caught up in that attack and in terms of that ability to take actual infrastructure offline using cyber attacks this report mentions they did not name the country but that north korea was able to access the banking infrastructure of atms in this unnamed country and could affect 10,000 withdrawals. We have no evidence, but I can't help wondering if it was the South African ATM system that was taken down and that they managed to get money out of it. Who knows? We don't don't know. But we do know that South Africa was a target in that attack. And South Africa is vulnerable because, you know, on the one hand, it's far more developed as the second biggest economy in the continent. You know, it's very developed. You've got ATMs all over the place. We've got, you know, quite um, we've got a very sophisticated banking system here, um, but we don't necessarily have the protective measures in place. And I, I know from insiders within the banking industry, they are very, very concerned about this. And actually, it's interesting that in South Africa, and we'll maybe get onto this a little bit later on, in terms of the protective measures, it is quite interesting that it's it's the private sector and the banking sector which is sort of taking the lead. Perhaps that's not surprising Um given the fact that, you know, they've definitely got a commercial driver to try and protect themselves from cyber attacks. And there is now a drive to try and get the commercial sector and the state sector and the police to all work together to try and come up with one um, key reactive point, if you like, a a sort of a a response centre. They call these certs in the 
in the language of, of cyber. Um, a bit like you might remember the COBRA system that we have in the UK, that when there is, for example, a physical terrorist attack, everybody sits down in a, a, a meeting room. I think it's actually at Downing Street. Uh, and it is basically a war room setup um, to try and bring together different sectors to respond to that. So South Africa doesn't have that yet. Um, and the problem is that we have the infrastructure, like the ATMs, as you say, to make us vulnerable. But there's pressure now to try and join up the dots. Um, and as you say, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is trying to push push this forward. A lot of this is down to money and political will, though. Mm. And South Africa doesn't seem to be engaging perhaps at the at the level of complexity that it needs to be. I'm sure some of that is resources, as you say. But one also does feel that perhaps Africa is, it's difficult to say the whole continent, and I'm also very aware that Nigeria and Kenya have a very sophisticated IT environment. But let's just generalise for the sake of, of the question is, do you think that Africa is putting in place the necessary steps in terms of education, money, uh, cybersecurity centres to address this? And I'm thinking particularly of interventions in elections and efforts by bad actors to influence African elections. I think certainly it's interesting that there's quite a lot of discussion at the moment between international missions, embassies across Africa um, and governments to try and help put in place and help support infrastructure for exactly that area. Because as you say, you know, the possibility of meddling in elections um, and um, influencing things becomes that much more vulnerable when, you know, in real times, never mind virtual times, the infrastructure is very, very fragile. So I think, I mean, that's definitely the role where the, the private sector, I think, could play a much, much bigger part. Um, I think there's growing awareness. I was quite staggered to learn that with the whole um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal that you, you'll remember, where sort of big data was used um, to manipulate sort of voter behaviour in, in the United States, Brexit in the UK, and and you know testing ground also in the Kenyan elections. Mm. Um, that actually we've now started waking up to this, but you know there is incredible potential for abuse there. And in that Cambridge Analytica scandal, 60,000 South African internet accounts were compromised. We've only just learned of this. So 60,000 South Africans had their data stolen by Cambridge Analytica, who we know was involved in this really troublesome behaviour in Kenya. I mean, Kenyans said, oh, we know Cambridge Analytica, they were involved in our elections years ago. Yeah, exactly. And and you just never heard another peep about it from South Africans. Yeah, exactly. Look, I think there's I think there's a, a, a one of the challenges is a lack of information and a lack of information sharing because reputational damage is huge. And again, particularly because the, the private sector will often be the ones with more capacity to deal with this. I've just mentioned the banking system earlier. There is a huge amount of incentive to stick your hand up and say, you know what? we've been hacked. Uh, The reputational damage, even if it's been dealt with very, very quickly, the reputational damage is still there. Just a few weeks ago, city of Joburg power um, was struck by a ransomware attack. That's an attack where effectively a piece of software, I'm going to get all the technical people ringing in now saying I'm not using the wrong wrong terminology, but just to explain it really, really simply, where effectively... A computer system is uh, encrypted, it's scrambled, uh, and then a message gets sent by outside, by outsiders, and a message gets sent 
to the owners of that system that they must pay a ransom in order for the, the hackers to unscramble it. Now, we're seeing more and more of these types of ransomware attacks. Now, that happened not long ago. It was in the papers, but it was never reported to the police. Now, I stand under correction, but at the time when I checked, it was never reported to the police. What that means is there was never a docket that was actually issued to turn that into a crime to be investigated. So you can see the problem where there's just not the the joined up thinking on this yet. And there's also a lot of, you know, protectiveness. You know, that said, I've talked to people within the banking system and they say, the banking system and the police service have got a very, very good relationship, but they can't do it on their own. They need the arc of government. They need the arc of support from other international donors to help with funding to get some of these systems off the ground. And what do you think those make- systems and initiatives would look like? You know, Sweden is starting to get its children as, as young as six and seven to be able to recognise and spot, um, for example, propaganda on the internet uh, to understand the risk of not keeping your passwords up to date. So that's at an individual level. But if you, Karen, if we made you president for a day, what would you do to start to put in place the building blocks for the South African government to be able to systematically arm the country, or maybe that's too warfare-like language, to prepare the country to deal with some of these realities? You know, it's education, and it's education, education, it's public education. You spoke to a, a very eminent professor who's a specialist in this area just last week, and, and he was saying, you know what, we're not going to be able to prevent every cyber attack. What we can do, though, is at least mitigate the threat by making people aware of of the fact that, you know, data can be compromised, very private data can be compromised, or their computer can be hacked and and taken over. And so, you know, I think there is a case for a sort of driving license type plan for every for, for, for kids at school or for people who are becoming new to using the internet. And a lot of people are using it on their phones. So, you know, we're talking about an awful lot of people that would need need educating. Just that basic cyber awareness would go an awful long way to try to um, mitigate some of the some of the worst effects. Not opening every single page mm. that comes onto your quarter. The police, I would also push for much much more education of the police. Maybe having a cyber security specialist force. Well, they do. You know, there are cyber security specialists within the police force. That's good to know. <laughs> and there is training that's going on of the police force. But for many police officers, uh, internet crime is a crime that's committed. We're using a computer. And of course, it goes much, much further than that. When a policeman turns up at a, uh, a, a crime scene, and don't forget, sometimes uh, cybercrime is a component of a physical crime, you know, don't just go switching on any computer. Gather the data, gather the evidence that might be subsequently needed. I mean, it means hard drives, it means seizing computers. Uh, be aware that that could in future become really, really important evidence in a, in, a, in a court case. But also, I think, you know, with my presidential term as president of South Africa, president I would also Alan, yeah. build... President Allen, it's got a nice ring to it, hasn't it? I would not want to be in Cyril's place today, I have to say. But I think, you know, what we are beginning to see is that South Africa is increasingly becoming involved in some of the big global conversations about how do we police this new environment. Um, and police always sounds a very... 
um, authoritarian rule. What I mean by that is, is effectively, how do we manage it? Because actually, let's face it, there is no how there's best practice in countries that are far richer than, than South Africa and that have are far greater resourced. And there are um, efforts that are underway at international level to try to um, uh, to try to develop what they call norms, so norms of behaviour, rules of rules of, of state behaviour, uh, as to how to deal with the very real challenges uh, and, of course, the, the the advantages of this new cyber landscape that we're that we're operating in. But it is still early days. The one other thing I would say is, don't be too proud. And what I mean by that is, you know, South Africa has got a very very proud tradition, quite rightly so, uh, of being a leader within the continent because of its very particular history. But there has been a tendency to want to go it alone when it comes to regional initiatives. And, and South Africa is not totally alone on this. But for example, the African Union some years ago um, developed a, a convention. Some people know it as the Malibu Convention uh, to thwart cyber crime um, and breaches in cyber security. Right. Now, only four or five states have actually signed up to that out of the 55 members of the African Union. And as a result, it cannot be, um, it cannot be implemented. Did South Africa sign up? Uh, South Africa signed up, but it hasn't ratified. And until it's ratified, it doesn't become effective. Now, that said, South Africa has introduced its, uh, or is going through the process of introducing a new cyber crimes bill. It's still going through Parliament uh, and still may take some time, becomes onto the statute book, which does things like um, tighten up the sentencing for cyber crime and also um, tightens up the the um, mechanisms for legal, uh, mutual legal assistance. Because, of course, these crimes are not territorially constrained. And um, they also seem unprosecutable. I mean, I, I just have never heard of anyone in a South African context being arrested for cybercrime. You know, it's it's interesting. It is it is happening, but it's happening at a very, very low level. Uh, I spoke to someone from the National Prosecuting Authority a couple of months ago and they described the case where they were they, the police stormed uh, a, a building where they'd had a tip off. Uh, to find, I think the, the, the prosecutor said it started with the smell of Dacha, marijuana, and ended up with a room full of men that were huddled over computers that were effectively hacking systems. Run. So there, there are cases in train that we can't hmm. talk about. If the smell of Dacha is a cue, I wonder if my neighbours are in running a cybercrime <laughs> <laughs> cyber operation. Get an awful yeah. lot of people. Melville <laughs> is involved in cybercrime, yeah. <laughs> Sure. But um, I mean, the point the point is that, you know, it is difficult to prosecute. And, you know, we haven't had many global prosecutions, have we? If, we, if So, you know, we need to put Africa and South Africa in particular into a into a global context. I think what we are seeing is this shift in global landscape, though, because, you know, some of the actors that we're talking about are hacktivists. They're people who are trying to make their point. Some of them are now um actors who are selling their services, uh, criminal syndicates who are selling their services to people who want to conduct nefarious ends. They're also uh, criminal gangs that are working on behalf of governments to use cyber as a new tool in their armory. Mm. And, you know, we've seen it happen in the United States, North Korea, 
Um, there have also been cyber attacks, you know, that, that, that have been matched, mounted by Britain. So, and China. You know, it's, I mean, China often raiding for intellectual property. Exactly. And how ironic that China was implicated in a hack on the very body that was trying to introduce tougher rules across Africa, the African Union um, in 2012, smart building built by, by the Chinese um, in Addis Ababa, turned out that they had suffered a, a massive hack, that it, it was reported by a Le Monde newspaper that all the data on the computers at the African Union headquarters at a certain time of day, usually in the middle of the night, copies were transferred to a date in Shanghai. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, Huawei was implicated in that. Nothing was ever proven. Um, But nevertheless, you know, this is completely shaping not only the business world in which we live, the criminal world in which we live, it's also shaping geopolitics. And and one thing I find, just sort of to mention one thing, Jessica, and we've talked about um, states using um, cyber to attack sort of physical threats. We mentioned the the American attack on Iran just recently, where they used uh, cyber devices in response to a a, a, a perceived shipping attack uh, by Iran. Mm. We have now got instances of real world responses to a virtual threat. What I mean by that is, it was reported that Israel earlier this year launched um, airstrikes on what they said was a Hamas facility which was being used for cyber operations. It feels like the world's gone mad. So this blurring of lines between virtual and real. Yes, it's accepted as an act of war now. It is accepted as an act, a hostile act, yes. It is accepted as an and you know, international law is beginning to, is is recognising cyber Uh, as a domain in the same way that a physical piece of land is a domain in which warfare is conducted. Um, But there are whole new debates that are going on as to, you know, what are the limits of that? South Africa sometimes can be arrogant in the sense that we don't think we have a lot of international enemies. We're so involved as a country with sort of fighting each other (laughs) that um, we don't have a lot of declared enemies, for example, the way perhaps America has declared Iran an enemy. And I wonder if that complacency around our foreign policy sometimes translates into having a lax attitude towards cyber attacks and cyber warfare. Look, you know, South Africa's got a long history of of being part of the non-aligned movement. And um, I think you're right. I think that is there was i'm going to put this in the past tense i think there was a sense that um we were somehow sort of protected from this because of this position we don't have any real enemies that have you know nuclear bombs that are pointing at us or um you know we'll see ourselves a target of cyber but actually this there's two things we can be used as a proxy let me give let me give an example and it's possibly a, a sort of real world example but this may relate to south africans particularly in Britain. You know, why do South Africans in Britain um, need visas? Uh, Because they were seen as being a flaw in the visa process in South Africa, which allowed Pakistani syndicates to forge passports pretending to be South African citizens and get into the UK Mm. that way. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it in very simple terms, but that was actually the reason. South Africa is potentially a very, very vulnerable proxy because it does have the infrastructure. It does have the connections with um, uh, potential foes to other 
governance. It's part of BRICS. That's not to say that, you know, we should necessarily view every Russian act or every Chinese act as one which is suspicious. But, you know, we have the infrastructure here, which means there is the potential to use that infrastructure to target another country. Um, and there's no reason why South Africa couldn't be a conduit for attacks. You know, people use facilities here. There's, in, there's, there's, there's foreign direct investment in South Africa. There are foreign interests in South Africa. So I think I think that sense of complacency, and I think many in South Africa uh, in the government would take issue when we're talking about complacency now, because they would say we are doing we are doing something now. We are trying to push this forward. Part of the problem is speed and resources. Um, but yes, South Africa is definitely vulnerable. The new cyber crimes bill is being debated in South Africa. It is on the table. So I'd urge all listeners to take a bit more interest in that. But Karen, do you have any resources, websites or books or authors who are working in this area that you think our listeners might benefit from going and finding their stuff and, and reading a bit more about this topic? Yes, absolutely. Uh First of all, I, a quick plug for the Institute of Security Studies, um, ISSAfrica.org. Uh, we are starting to put um, seminars and uh, briefings onto our website. It is still a work in progress. It's still early days, but definitely watch this space. There's a book that I'm starting to read by David Sangen. Now, he's a New York Times journalist, which is called The Perfect Weapon, and it is about uh, war sabotage and fear in the cyber age. Um, a very good book that basically sets this in context. If people are in the UK, they might be watching uh, a BBC series. This is, sounds like a plug, but it's absolutely not. You worked for the BBC for many years. Go for it. It's called The Capture um, and it envisions, it's a drama series, but it envisions a world where big data, and that includes data that get, gets collected by CCTV cameras um, around, uh, around various sort of locations, uh, gets manipulated and the possibility of manipulating and, 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 and implicating people who might otherwise be innocent. You know, it envisions this really sort of dystopian era where this type of technology gets abused. I think that's really worth watching just for the 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 drama of it, if you the like. The capture. But the yeah, it's called the capture. But there's also really, really good resources um, on South African gov government websites. There's also very good resources um, at the UN level. People might, if they want to know what is um, happening in terms of the global conversations about the establishment of norms, then, you know, you could have a look at um, the group of government experts and open-ended working group work, which is looking specifically at um, developing norms and developing rules of behavior. Uh, there is a book, I haven't read it yet, but uh, it's certainly been recommended, which is called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Um, and it's about big tech. It's about the tech companies they basically wanting to control uh, how we think and what we do for profit. Because, of course, one of the big issues that we haven't had a chance to touch upon is the sort of sovereignty of big data. Who owns it? Mm. Do we own it as individuals? Do countries own it? And why do we give it away for free? And why do we give it away for free? Exactly. It's supposed to be a stunning book. And, you know, it, it basically talks of the sorts of things that we touched upon in the beginning of our chat, particularly with relation to you know, things like Cambridge Analytica. So I think that's definitely worth a read. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, yeah. 
Karen Allen, there's so much here I want to talk about, including uh, facial recognition technology. There's now voice imitation technology. There was a, um, a heist just committed with a British oil company where hackers used voice imitation technology. That's quite amazing. Um, the rise of 5G and Huawei. So I will schedule all of these for future shows. For sure. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Following our discussion, Karen published a concise, excellent piece in the UK's Guardian newspaper precisely on South Africa's readiness to face the challenge of cyber attacks. And you can read her piece by clicking on the link I've included in the podcast notes. Thank you for all your feedback on last week's episode on national health insurance. I got a fair whack of messages saying the podcast terrified the living daylights out of people, which is, of course, always my intention. Catch you next time.